Bonjour, ni hao. Como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. So it's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. So just before we get into today's episode, I just want to give a shout out to Yaniv and Chris, who also have another podcast called The Startup Podcast. What I really enjoyed about it is they've been there, done that. And they've both been working in multiple countries around the world. They've worked for Google, small startups, billion dollar unicorns. So if you're in the startup game, scale up game or the tech industry, and you want to cut through all the folly that everyone talks about, I highly recommend you give a listen to one of the episodes. Without experience in those areas, you can be told lots of different things, lots of different people. So if you have a chance, just Google and search for Chris and Yaniv, Y-A-N-I-V, and their podcast, The Startup Podcast. What is strategy? Is it a plane? Is it a bird? Strategy has become such a buzzword these days that often it's just a prefix that's added to job titles to help make the role sound better, regardless of whether that role actually requires strategy acumen or not. So basically everyone seems to be strategic these days, but what does that even mean? Who better to unpack all these strategy questions than someone who's just finished working for one of the largest companies in the world? Today we're talking to Bryant Graves, an ex-senior strategy manager at Walmart and now a go-to-market strategy manager at Snowflake. We've talked previously with Krim from Cascade more generally about strategy, but now it's time to dig a little deeper. Bryant's worked for VC firms, for consulting firms, for Ancestry.com, one of the world's largest retailers, and now one of the most profitable software firms in the world. And with such breadth of exposure, he's the perfect person to unpack all these questions that we need answered. So what is strategy? What isn't strategy? Is it just a vision or mission statement? What are the different layers from corporate to business, operational and functional? And how do they apply to our role? So what are the hallmarks of good strategy versus bad strategy? How do you source strategy? Is it from management consulting practices, from independent contractors or internal staff? And why does a lot of strategy fail when it comes to implementation? Is strategy just something that happens in a boardroom once per financial year, or is it something that's more dynamic, changeable, and iterative? What caused Instagram to rip apart their whole organizational structure and rebuild it in just three months? And how do we know if strategies worked or not? Should we use Waterfall or Agile, which is better? What core parts of Walmart do people overlook when mistaking it for a pure retailer? All these questions more would be answered in this episode. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Bryant Graves. Boba tea, not champagne, but I'm actually a fan of boba tea. I think it's a bad rap, but I did hear this case of this Chinese person ordering too many boba teas and not knowing how sugary they are. And then she actually died from it. She went hyperglycemic. Yeah, so there's a lot of sugar. I get like zero sugar or, no, or less sugar and less That's ice. That's what I do as well. Yeah, okay. And sometimes I do the fruit one because I, I don't want milk. But uh, what, what sort of boba tea is your favorite? Like, what do we got? I uh, I think, you know, passion fruit juice or grapefruit juice, you know, like yes. you said, the fruit ones. Yes, yes. Um, you know, less sugar, you know, no ice. So this one's seasonal and it's only at the best bubble tea places because the white peach, which they blend into the tea. And then you can put like lychee jelly or popping lychee jelly in the bottom. That's kind of like one of my favorite combos, but only when peaches are in season. Otherwise they use the peach cordial. It's not the same. Yeah, it's, it's always a struggle to try and find like the, is it real fresh fruit juice or is it just the syrup? Well, if you go to Gongcha or some of the bigger chains, it's generally at the latter. I and mean, if you go to some of the more niche ones and you look behind and it's not just all in canisters that they're pouring out, mm -hmm. it tends to be a sign of better quality. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell me about like the bubble tea obsession. Um, you lived in Taiwan? Or? Yeah. So, you know, during college, it took a two year break and went and, and lived in Taiwan. It was great food as well. I mean, you must love the, uh, the, the flat fried chicken as well, but they do pretty yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, the street food in Taiwan is incredible. You know, it's yeah. you can't beat it as far as like taste and, and price goes. I mean, you can go and eat as much as you want for like three American dollars, which is, you know, crazy. You can't do that anywhere else. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I think we were sort of randomly connected over, was it LinkedIn or something? And I saw you were working at, at Walmart at the time and I was doing some work in the retail industry there. So yeah, and then I read a, a couple of articles uh, that you wrote and I was like, okay, this guy gets it. Obviously, you sort of been around the block a bit. So yeah, excited to be here. I, it's always 
always interesting, kind of the random LinkedIn conversations. I think the best thing about it is the DMs and then take it offline, like have a conversation and or do something like this, even more in depth. Boba tea, I couldn't get one because they're not open yet, my local Boba tea. So that the kits are becoming popular, not the same, uh, I'd have to say, especially the, the pearls because they make those generally fresh or frozen and then reheat them. These ones sort of come in a cryovac packet, like a vacuum sachet and they're mm-hmm. a bit squelchy. I mean, that's that's how you tell whether a boba place is good or not is, is you know, what's the texture right. of their of their boba. It started in Taiwan, boba tea, like, right? And then sort of I, I have no idea exactly where it started, but I mean, that's that's where I kind of discovered it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was. And then it sort of spread everywhere else from there. And then, you know, anyway, over yeah. to you. Give us a little quick, like one minute, two minute background and like your career progression and then sort of the work that you're doing and then where you where you're working now because you've just recently changed roles initially started out like you know any other kid not knowing you know what they want to do how they want to do it you know i, I had some in-laws who were accountants and they said you know you should you should take some accounting classes and that was uh terrible advice you know it took took one accounting class and thought you know hey this is great to understand but i could not do this forever and you know, eventually stumbled on a strategy program that my university offered that was taught by ex-McKinsey and Bain folks. So it was really great Ooh. to get somebody with you know real industry experience versus you know just another academic talking about something. Yeah. And you know, wanted to see you know how how I could apply that because you can you can do it in any number of different fields. And so throughout undergrad, did seven different internships across accounting. Funny enough, private wealth management data analytics, FP&A, sales strategy, and a little bit of VC, but ultimately felt like, you know, even after those like short internships, I thought I I could never do this my entire life. And, you know, ended up joining corporate Walmart down in in Bentonville, Arkansas. Yeah. So Walmart's uh, like corporate headquarters are are based in Bentonville, Arkansas. Oh, okay. So the entire, I mean, the entire city area is kind of based around Bentonville and, and the founders there. So joined on on the strategy team for Walmart's previous CTO. Was on that team for about two years. I worked on a number of really cool projects from you know standing up product management at Walmart, cloud migration, a number of other different things. But eventually jumped over to the chief data officer when he was hired as the first strategy hire for his team, which was you know about twelve hundred people, and you know was on that team for we'll say like the remainder of my time at Walmart. You know hit five years like last month, and then you know like you said. Recently made the shift. I'm now with Snowflake doing go-to-market strategy. You know, a lot of people kind of in the in the career of strategy, there's only so much runway to it. And eventually you want to either kind of move into the business or something like that. But we can kind of dive into that later on in our conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's kind of one of the things uh, because I, I was just doing a go-to-market strategy. I mean, I do them all the time, especially pre-market. So, you know, st- startups. The only time I work with startups is when they're going to market. And then I generally come in at scale up phase. That's why I want to talk to you because I really liked one of your articles, which went through all the sort of levels of strategy. But before we get into that, in the simplest way, how would you describe what strategy is? You know, honestly, I, I think I'll, I've, I've held pretty true to like what my professor's definition is. I, I think I've kind of tweaked it a little bit over time, but, you know, one was super simplistic you know strategy is is a series of kind of choices actions investments you know focused on creating and sustaining competitive advantage and and unique value um you know maybe more tangibly like a, a business strategy is oftentimes what market geography segment are you targeting what what unique value are you providing to that segment whether it's through like a product or service what resources and capabilities are used to deliver that unique value and then, you know, how do we sustain that as well throughout time? And then that sort of flows down into some of the other areas. I work very heavily in product marketing and sales. That's kind of like my, my trio. And distribution comes into that as well, but only in services. So it's a bit of a different distribution play. But I've done some brand work and top level business strategy work before, which is how do we create value? Which market we want to play in? Defining TAM, Samsung, those kind of things. So mm-hmm. I find those those do filter down to other areas of strategy. So if you had to break it down to like the different, if you say, hey, I'm a strategist, and then you'd be like, okay, well, what type or what area do you do? I mean, if you had to categorize them, how would you sort of look at it? You know, before I even get into categorization, I always have to ask, you know, like, what, what do you actually do? Because strategies have become you know, such a buzzword these days. Um, Everyone's strategic I, I saw, something, right? It's like an adjective. Yeah, strategic title. something. Yeah. Oftentimes, it's just like a measure of seniority. 
not whether you're actually doing strategy or not. You know, I, I saw a job title the other day that was director of meat strategy. What, what even is that? <laughs> <laughs> but kind of referencing the, the articles that you've read that, that I wrote, I, I've kind of separated it into four different layers. You know, at the very top, we have corporate strategy, which is, you know, really formed at those kind of top echelons of the company, you know, thinking about, you know, long-term objectives, you know, where we want to position the company overall. And then, you know, starting Especially to go one like layer down. Multiple business units and stuff like which at Walmart yeah, you would have, exactly. right? Yeah, in a group structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So whether that's, you know, like a, a conglomerate, like maybe Samsung, where they have like their electronics business or um, like their, their appliance <laughs> business or, you know, any other of those businesses. Or it could be, you know, different geographies, which is kind yeah. of how Walmart is, is structured. And so under that, you know, is typically kind of the, the business strategy layer, which as you mentioned, like that's what, when we get down to like, you know, the Samsung electronics level, sometimes, you know, depending on the company size, corporate and, and business strategy are the same thing. And those, you know, I'll, I'll 100% classify as, as strategy. I think my perspective is, is potentially shifting, but right now underneath those, we then have kind of functional strategy, which is designing the approach for specific functions within those businesses to actually go and deliver the work. So how does marketing go and do their work? How does engineering go and do their work? And then operating strategy at the very bottom, which is I'll say super close or, or almost identical to like project management, you know, outlining this, the tactical steps that you go and, and how you do something. We just to touch on what strategy is, but often I find defining what it isn't is sometimes a bit better exercise. So you mentioned, you know, adding a strategy to your title doesn't mean it's strategy. What What isn't strategy then? And what does it get confused with? So, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, this is our strategy. And you look at it and it's, it's just like a vision or, or mission statement, which is like, oh, okay, great. Is that attainable? Like, what does that actually mean? It's, it's not a project management plan. It's, it's not like a financial model. I, I think for the most part, a lot of people say it's, it's strategy, but it's only, you know, one of the hundred pieces or whatever that makes up strategy. It's strategy is much more holistic than what most people think of it as. So like if you had to apply a litmus test then to something and you go, hey, well, this isn't strategy because it doesn't include XXX. For example, here's a list of choices for marketing channels. You'd be like, well, that's not a strategy. This is a, this is a list of things you could do. Where's the research? Where's the thought that's gone into that? And then how would you choose them? And then how would you implement them is kind of more what I'd be seeing and what you're trying to achieve mm-hmm. out of that. So is there something you see mission and vision is kind of where you want to go in the future? That doesn't mean how to get there is uh, detailed. How would you apply a litmus test for something to check whether it's strategy or not? Like a lot of a lot of things, there's never like a cut and dried answer. But I think my litmus test is honestly, you, you started to kind of go through it maybe the question is like, what channel should we should we market through? Not strategy. That's just like picking where are our customers and where do we get like the best return on ad spend? Um, like super, super tactical question. But you articulated like, who are we targeting? What are we serving to them? What, what What's the offering? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, as soon as it gets broader and starts cutting across different teams and the project doesn't really have a clear owner, at that point, that's that's when it's true strategy. Okay, and so you say you're working a go-to-market strategy right now. So if you just had to explain what that is, because I want to talk about this a bit more, what is this? Because this gets floated around a lot. And how can you do a go-to-market strategy when you're already in market with your current uh, <laughs> employer? Like you've been around for a while. So what is go-to-market strategy? Is that when you're like putting a new product out there or feature and it's like a go-to-market strategy? Like how would you describe that? I think go-to-market honestly cuts across some of those different layers of strategy that I outlined earlier. Starting from like a, like a greenfield instance, it could be what markets have the most potential, what's the size for those markets, what do customers look like, what kind of products are... Actually, we'll take a step back from that. Like what, what jobs are they trying to solve? And then what products can we build to solve those? And then how do we deliver those? And then you go through the whole marketing sales and distribution aspect there. That's definitely the, the, the green field. Nothing is there yet, but companies are established. So there's always different kind of tweaks to that, whether it's entering a new market, launching a new product, launching a variation of a product. New territory. Um, new territory, something like that. There's always different kind of flavors to go to market. And ideally, if you've done it, we'll say like right the first time, all of those follow-ups should kind of slot into how it was defined earlier. I know I've come across this quite a bit because I do a lot of advisory work, but there are certain (laughs) symptoms that you notice over and over. I'm not sure, you know, you're working with different teams or departments. For me, it's like different companies. And I see the same sort of symptoms coming up, which 
really hints at the fact that they have a strategy problem. I've got a couple in my head, but what have you noticed? Even if it's an internal team, those guys need strategy because that's not working. What other kind of things that you see or symptoms? The first question that I typically ask when I start interacting with teams is, why are we doing this? <laughs> and if people Such can't answer question. the why, like done. <laughs> um, like you, you need the context and the rationale for, you know, why you're doing what you're doing. And ultimately that informs the, the what you do and the how you do it. Yeah. So that's super conceptual level. My first benchmark that you kind of have to pass. After that next benchmark, if they, if they can answer the why, you, you can pretty quickly identify, this is going to sound super consulting-y, but I think that it, it applies. How messy is their approach? Are they only focusing on what is engineering doing? Okay, strategy problem. You, you can't just think of these things in an isolated bucket. Yep. Um, you kind of have to think about, you know, what's the, the whole universe of things that's needed to accomplish this problem? And, and what are those discrete levers that we need to pull or, or interact with to make it happen? So cross-functional sort of layer. So they don't have to go deep mm -hmm. into some other, other department or higher level strategy, but they need to have at least a con context behind how their role fits into that bigger picture. Is that what you're saying? Uh, lots of people talk about strategy folks as like jack of all trades, master of none. We can kind of get into that of being both broad and deep. Not sure if you've heard the framework of T-shaped or X-shaped. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about like that, that now because I think it's really relevant. I saw it on LinkedIn the other day. The general specialist, like it's the ultimate sort of there is no right answer to this. I mean, you know, it depends on your operational strategy. Mm -hmm. For me, I see it from like a, a capability perspective. Like you need to have both. How much of each you have and why you need each is really the secondary question example sometimes you can have a team but they have a capability gap sometimes they don't know they have a capability gap though because they've hired someone and they've said they can do these things but they really can't or they're just not aware of what they're not aware of so then sometimes they bring an external advisor you know such as me or, or you or something as a consultant and they then highlight the deficiency they have in some of these other areas and they oh we haven't actually thought about that before when it's quite obvious to that other person and then you know you need people to when it comes to execution to be really specialists about mm -hmm. taking that and then making it into that specific tactical sort of side of things. So what are your thoughts anyway? You know, 100% agree. I think that we can talk about it from, we'll say like maybe two different lenses. One is is the lens that, that you talked about. Like we, we need the ability to look broad across the company and then have those people that are executing on them individually. Uh, from that regard, I'll make like the slightly somewhat controversial argument. Uh, we'll use a Walmart example. Like a, a cashier in the store is just as important as the CFO. To, to some degree, like, yes, but we can, we can kind of leave that aside for the other day. Another one is probably from like a career developmental perspective. I think it's probably a symptom. I'm not sure what it's like in, in Australia, but in the US, a symptom of like our educational system where people kind of go into one field and stay in that field the entire time. And they're super well, very, narrow. And they very competitive kind of market, right? employment mm -hmm. market, right? Obviously, um, it's way more competitive than, than Australia. Like, yeah, and yeah. I noticed that as well. Because it's so competitive, you've got to stand out for, for roles. To do that, you, you go deep and you specialize mm -hmm. into, into your role. And I think I see this on teams. I see teams full of specialists but they can't coordinate things together. You need mm -hmm. that generalist layering over the top. And other times I've seen just lots of generalists and nobody can execute or go deep. And then they just end up having lots of discussions and planning lots of things but nothing ever happens. Or if it does, mm -hmm. they overlook the importance mm -hmm. of execution. Now, and that's why I was kind of saying you kind of have, have to have both. How much of yeah. each one you have is kind of the next step. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree. And, and I mean, you can, you can start broad in like a consultant or generalist role and then develop those those depths, whether it's like industry expertise or, or functional, mm -hmm. or I think a lot of executives at different companies, you know, they'll, they'll kind of bounce around and like, they'll start in finance, then they'll move to marketing, then they'll move to operations and, and then they yeah. get their breadth. And at that point they're ready to become, you know, a C-suite person. Yeah. And, and maybe own a business, you know, sort of become mm -hmm. a quasi CEO of, of that business unit. Yeah. I find the same, yeah. like I came from the sort of the marketing route, which is very weird, but I was always strategic and then went to more planning and then from there. I've learned probably the most from, from hanging out with finance people and analysts and accountants. And then once you mix that language into 
to the rest of your skill set and then working with product and operations later. I think unless you've done all those things, I would be making the worst advice ever uh, <laughs> to people like, because I'm just stuck in that sort of media ad land bubble. You don't see so much else that drives the business. Coming back to Walmart, like distribution is a key competitive advantage. You know, Amazon arguably is a distribution company, you know, underneath to a certain extent, they're not really a, a retailer. So like, yeah, there's these core things that you can easily overlook and just pretend uh, a 15 second uh, TV commercial is like the, the key to, to growing a business mm-hmm. um, when I, I know that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Most visual aspect of, of sometimes the function, but yeah. I, the other thing I've noticed is, yeah, lots of people getting really busy. Uh, I want to talk to you about this because in the agile or agile done badly <laughs> area, <laughs> you get a lot of younger teams maybe that think they know a lot of the other areas and you get a lot of this busy frantic sort of we're on the rocket ship sort of startup growth and there's everyone's rushing around doing lots of things but then it doesn't push the button and i notice this symptom a lot and often it's because they're doing lots of things but they're not doing it in a focused way so sometimes for me like strategy is kind of focused effort uh, what do you what do you say to that strategy is as much about doing the right thing it's also about you know, what you choose not to do. I think that huge symptoms that I've seen as like everything is a priority, in which case, you know, nothing is a priority at that point. Or nothing gets done. nothing gets done. Yeah, exactly. You know, you have your your budget of, you know, $100 or whatever. And if you spread, you know, $5 out to the 20 projects that you do, like nothing gets done or it gets done badly. Or you can spend, you know, $10 on one project that, you know, moves at 80%, you know, then we get into like Pareto principle, then we're back into like the jargony world here. But um, you know, a hundred percent agree. Deciding what not to do, I think is one of my favorite things. But yeah, prioritization, I think is really key here. But yeah, look, I, I think the strategy has been done well. One of my litmus tests is you ask these four questions to any function in, in the business, you know, who are you? What do you do? How do you do it? And why does it matter? And if, if you ask that question to every single person on the team individually, and they'll come back to you with a pretty good answer that's consistent, for me, that's, that's alignment. So that's, mm-hmm. that's when your strategy has sort of worked or filtered down properly. I 100% agree on that. I mean, since I just changed jobs, that was like one of the tests that I would give, like asking people through my interviews. And if, if people came back with like different answers of like what the team does, I would, I would drop out of the interview process. That's a good, that's a good, uh, yeah, interview process thing. Yeah, I think because that shows like there's a systemic focus and strategy problem at, at the heart of the company and those things generally don't heal. But speaking of that, uh, as a good segue, how do you source good strategy? Because there is, you know, unless you've worked internally, there is this um, sometimes preponderance for certain bureaucratic firms or large government agencies, et cetera, to use management consultants. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what they're known for is that sort of corporate strategy piece and business strategy piece. You know, we've got our big, big four and then, these accounting practices that have then gone into strategy, <laughs> plugging the gap, and then lots of medium and smaller ones, uh, which is kind of where I sit, that are arguably somewhat higher skilled in certain areas. When we're sourcing strategy, you work internally, but what are our options? Do we do in-house? Do we do out-of-house? Management consulting agency? What, mm-hmm. What's your advice there? You know, it's, it's hard because like strategy teams don't ever get big. I, I think rightly so. Like they remain small. And so... You know, you, you can go like the big four MBB traditional, you know, management consulting route because you know that they've been through, we'll, we'll just like generally call it, you know, a training program of some sort because at the corporate level, you know, you have four people on your team. You, you don't really have time to like train like a new analyst. Um, you, mm-hmm. you can to some degree, but at that point you have to start walking them through, okay, here are a ton of frameworks, memorize these frameworks now throw them out. Like you're never going to use a canned framework again. Like the point was just to make you have structured thought processes and be able to structure ambiguous problems. And like that, that's a very hard thing to train into someone, especially if they started, you know, going back to our, like our, our depth versus breadth conversation. If they, if they started in a pure depth sort of function, it's, it's very hard for people to make that, that jump, you know, just like an anecdotal example there, you know, in my strategy program, one of my professors at the beginning of every single class, you know, we would be looking at a different framework along with a, a business case, whether it was, you know, Walmart, United Airlines, you know, Netflix, Blockbuster, you know, whatever the company was. At the beginning of every class, he would always ask, what is the strategy of this company? And he would go through those four things. What's the market? What's the unique value? What are the resources and capabilities? And it was, it was hilarious to watch people, you know, 180 days in like still fumble through the answer and it's like he's gonna ask this every day like 
you should know the answers to those four questions. <laughs> but it, it's hard. I mean, you know, you can say explicitly, like, memorize this framework. At that point, it becomes not useful because it's inflexible. But like really training that that flexibility in is another option. It, it just takes time. So kind of back to the original question, you know, we can, we can go for, you know, traditional management consulting people like that. Another thing that you can look at that I found is helpful is looking at people who have spent time in multiple different functions, because even if they haven't had that training, they're just naturally inclined to like learning different aspects of the business. Yep. A, a third one that, you know, I, I don't think I would have said, you know, probably a few years ago, but I would say like the education sector, <laughs> not sure if there's a, a similar organization like this in Australia, but there's, there's an organization called teach for America in the U S where you get, you know, basically fresh college grads from, you know, any, any degree program, you know, marketing, engineering, um, chemistry, whatever it is. And they, they essentially go and they teach high school for like two years and then they, you know, then move into industry after that. And our team hired, so, so they two teach in, people. in secondary school, those college grads. Yeah, college grads will teach, you know, high school or middle school. Um, it's like a pretty refining experience to have to explain something complex to somebody young who doesn't have any background in it. It's like the, the being Feynman, able to... Richard Feynman sort of technique, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And being able to like think through and, and reason and then the patience of like explaining that to you know, like dumb teenagers, because everybody is like dumb at that age. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm the like, same. I'm, I think it's a really good test, like even just doing what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. When I was first invited my first podcast, I was like, oh, this topic, yeah, I know this topic. And then I, I practiced a bit beforehand. I'm like, I really don't know this topic. <laughs> I was just talking to the camera and I was like, wow, I need to organize my thoughts. I need to use some kind of organizational framework. There's some people um, that can just talk off the cuff, but there's no structure to their thought. Mm -hmm. And then I learned the sort of pyramiding sort of um, writing technique. So I think really good practice is writing it down because mm -hmm. you'll write a lot of jumble and then you'll sort of reorganize it into a more concise structure. The next hardest thing is then explaining that because you'll notice when you write, it's quite formal. And when you're mm -hmm. explaining something to someone in words, you have to use a bit more anecdotes and more casual mm -hmm. language to get that across and maybe simplify it even more. And I think if you can write and teach and say it and talk about it, it's a really good technique to have. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. So, I mean, I mean, ultimately it all boils down to who can have that structured thought process. Like at that point you can solve you know, any problem, if you've never heard of it before, if you can think about the drivers and, and go and learn about it in a structured way, and then go and apply those learnings, that, that's yeah. what strategy is. So there's one problem in the marketing function that's quite systemic, and that is relying on vendors to source strategy. So maybe the head of the department or one of the decision makers will go, hey, uh, brief us or pitch us what you think should happen. And so they'll come back with all these pitches with varying degrees of strategic structure, and then sort of pass it off as their own into upper management, and then package it up or white label it. And then there's sort of like this, this whole middle management layer of people who actually can't create strategy because they've relied on vendors do you see that as like a bit of a, a problem where i would argue the the main function of an executive or senior manager is strategy and if you can't do that yourself and you have to rely on someone else then that's probably a problem and you're going to get a a very flavored, potentially commercially conflicted view of strategy that could be quite compromising. So yeah, talking about the bad side of strategy, what are the what are the bad things you've seen that, that have like ended in tears? Like McKinsey's uh, CNN Plus thing just, just happened recently. I, I don't know what the reasons were behind that, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> happens yeah, to the best of us, right? 100% agree with you. Not sure if you've heard of like the, the Peter principle. People get promoted because they're they're good at their job, but that doesn't mean they'll necessarily be good at the job that they're being promoted into. Mm. So like a lot of people, great operators, they should probably stop at senior analyst just because they, they can't be like a manager or think across mm. things. But I mean, you know, we live in a world of, of social media and LinkedIn and and vanity of seeing things. <laughs> That's true. Some some of the most famous people, by the way, on social media, I've, I've met and talked to them, I'm like, wow, they really don't know what they're talking about at all. I yeah. would never trust them. <laughs> but their posts sound really good, you know, like, wow, this person is quite informative. And then they've just ripped off somebody else anyway and copied it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I actually had a friend, somebody called him out on LinkedIn for being, you know, like a fake influencer. And he, he didn't tag his name, but he did write his name in the post, which is 
is is funny. It's a little bit cowardly, honestly. If, if you're going to call him out, like call him out. And he was like, yeah, he, he doesn't care about you. He just cares about his revenue. His things are fluffy. And within like five minutes, that person had actually found the post and commented and was like, hey, let's set up a chat. I care more than other influencers. <laughs> Okay, so maybe don't source strategy from LinkedIn people. <laughs> but yeah, look, I just want to come back to this because I think sourcing strategy is really important because, okay, say we're in a like in a mature organization, like you, you have a small strategy team. Some of my other friends work at similar billion dollar companies and they have a core strategy team. Maybe they split up by function, but quite lean. And uh, I think uh, that only becomes when you're a large company where you can employ a full-time strategy resource or multiple people. But on the smaller side of business, they don't they can't afford that. They can't find those people. So then they're forced to sort of source, source it from externally. Or I've experimented with being more a facilitator of the strategy. So I work with executives, ask you know really dumb questions, and then notate it mm-hmm. down and help structure their answers into strategy so it's kind of coming from them but i'm filling the gaps and helping facilitate the discussion so it's still internal but i call it more like a hybrid approach Mm -hmm. the other approach is to then hire an agency or you know consultant to kind of do the whole thing for you and what you get obviously varies in terms of its validity so that's kind of like external versus the internal people do it but then sometimes they lack the the general exposure to the market Mm because just the nature of their experience. So there's trade-offs, you know, with both. What, what do you recommend for sort of medium-sized businesses? Ooh, that's tough. What have you seen work better? I, I know you've worked for very large organizations, but you must know <laughs> other people, other businesses that have, have done a bit of strategy work as well. I, I don't know if I would separate it by company size. Okay. Um, I, I know that that was your original question. No, no, no. I'm, I, maybe maturity. Yeah, yeah. I, I think maturity is like a, a better barometer there because every every organization goes through a, a cycle of, let's say, like need, needing strategy and, and not needing strategy. You know, at some point you have to define and deliver and define and deliver and you kind of iterate through that. Yep. At like a startup, ideally your founder or CEO should be that visionary source of strategy. As you start to scale probably to a, we'll say like, somewhat more mature, I don't know, call it growth stage or medium sized company. It's, it's hard. You've had people that are, are good operators. And at this point you have to scale. So do you promote them or do you look externally to hire people? And so you can look at, Hey, what's another company in our industry that's was here two to three years ago. Like, can we hire somebody from that company to come do it again for us? But I think ultimately it, it goes back to like, what's the maturity curve of the company? What, what stage, what type of strategy is, is needed at that stage? Yeah. And I think that that will drive how you go and source or find those people. Yeah, because there's this uh, whole myriad of online advisory sort of panels. So I'm not sure if you heard of Expert360, a lot of ex-consultants are sort of listed on there, or they use that for recruitment into project work, like some of the, mm-hmm. there's, you know, GLG network, mm-hmm. um, Trust Advisor, I think there's, yeah, there's a whole, yeah, there's yeah. A whole yeah. range of them mm-hmm. where ex-consultants or people with pretty pretty high level of understanding put up their wares and then you can hire them for a little. Do you find that as a good option? Or is that the sort of future of where we're heading, do you think? I've used GLG in the past. I've, I've been on both sides of the table through GLG, actually. I think it's helpful. In the end, maybe we can link it back to something you said before. There's different types of, of leaders within the company, whether it's like a, a pure strategy consultant or some sort of portfolio orchestrator, which is, is maybe a we'll say like the role that you played coordinating across these leaders to consolidate and structure the ideas or, you know, some sort of like special projects team. You know, if you, if you do source it externally, you need, you know, they're pitching, but you still need somebody internally as, as the catcher to, to do that as a strategist, never, never say never. There's always the pendulum swing of strategy is fully external. Then it becomes internal. I think management consulting was, huge back in the 90s and early 2000s and i think it's kind of waning these days which maybe kind of transitions us into like a a future discussion of like what is the future of strategy here hold Um, that thought because that's one of my last questions (laughs) before we get there because you just mentioned something which is very design thinking which is define deliver iterate define deliver iterate over cycles what has happened in the past and coming back to the 90s management consulting thing was these 12 months sort of planning days where they go, okay, right, new financial year. This is our new strategy plan for the next 12 months. You know, create this huge document, all looks good, you know, bells and whistles, PowerPoint, spreadsheets, really cool graphs. And everyone goes, oh, this is great. You know, we're going to get our strategy. And then they try to put it in practice and no one's there or they pump it off to an implementation partner or whatever. And it's sort of all just sort of 
fizzles out and then they do the same thing the next year and the same thing the next year <laughs> versus i would say the other extreme end of that spectrum is more of that startup sort of scrappiness very focused team circular iterative process or you know the growth loop sort of process whatever you want to call that and then there's sort of things in, in between i can see that fail too because sometimes it's not defined enough at the onset and then they're just going mm-hmm. these loops and optimizing something that doesn't need to be optimized kind of like what elon musk says about engineers <laughs> their biggest problem so well we have a mutual vendor called cascade who sort of try to create that cascading strategy which i sort of mentioned before which i'm a a big proponent of and also Mm -hmm. that emergent strategy process which is another buzzword that gets flown around which is okay we don't know exactly what to do but we'll find out through these cycles so Mm -hmm. that's like the sort of two approaches here can you talk from your perspective about the approaches you've you've seen or been part of and the pros and cons of of that there's there's always a different spectrum there I, i think you you laid out the two extremes very well which is typically the approach that i take is like lay out the extremes and then well what's the ideal in the middle my, my undergrad was in econ as well so i mean you always learn like perfect competition or monopoly like it's yeah. it's never that never it's, it's always something in the middle yeah. <laughs> so i think you, you defined it well you have these huge giant monolithic decks that like nobody ever looks at again or like micro optimization that's not so actually true. working towards like a broader bigger vision you know, I, I think I've seen it all of those different ways, you know, seeing people do the annual plans and then they drop it. It's typically associated with like the annual like operating plan where they like figure out headcounts for next year. And then, you know, yep. after Budget. you've shown the executives your your list of top 20, nobody holds you accountable to it and it, and it goes out the window and you do whatever you want. <laughs> I, ideally, the approach is somewhere in the middle where you have a strategy team of, of some flavor, depending on the company's maturity level, dev- define, we'll say like a an overarching loose structure that ties the different business units together. And that is, is pretty persistent. We'll, we'll call that like deliberate strategy. You know, you said emergent strategy. There's actually a, a piece of work written by a guy named Daniel Leventhal. It's called an adaptation on rugged landscapes. Like if you want to go back into like the, the hardcore, like strategy yeah. academics, like that's a great paper to read, but, okay. but anyways, um, like a, a very persistent kind of light layer on top that helps guide people across. And then depending on the company size, as they go through that, that maturity cycle of, of defining and executing, Sometimes it's the whole company. I, I don't think it's usually the whole company at a time. It's usually pieces of the company that go through those cycles at different rates. And so at that point, the strategy team can kind of float from team to team and define more detailed specific pieces for each of those areas. And at that yeah. point, it becomes more iterative within that broader scope. You know, that idea of design thinking sort of, you know, you go mm-hmm. you go out and then you come back in, go out and come back in. So, um, but you have the continuity underneath of the, the context mm-hmm. on each stage. So yeah, I like, I like that sort of thought. I think sometimes that thin layer that connects everything together is the missing piece. You have, you know, departments all doing their own thing. And then you're like, well, how does that fit into the broader context? And it can be really easy to overlook. So when you are implementing strategy, which is the next problem, how did you go about doing that? Is there a sort of a process or stages that you go through? It, it's hard. Because I, I think that at this point, it becomes less about what the company is or what tool you're using. I think at this point, we get to like culture and like organizational muscle as yeah. far as implementing strategy. And this is where it gets um, messy with operations. <laughs> yeah. Like when I started in strategy, I was, I was super naive. I thought, you know, like perfect research analysis logic, people would just go and do it. Like that is not the case. <laughs> um, I thought that I, I think in one of my articles, I cite like some healthcare study where people have these major cardiac events and then they like go back to doing the things that caused the major cardiac event. And it's like, you almost died and you still didn't change. So, I mean, that that's like evidence of like people just like don't change, but there, there's like a number of different frameworks that you can use. Uh, you know, you brought up cascade, like the idea of working towards like a common goal and, and aligning that and seeing how people fit into a, a bigger picture is important. Um, Another general framework that I think, you know, Salesforce created and championed is like the V2 mom structure of like how do things fit together in a bigger picture or or like, you know, Google's like OKRs, that's probably become more broadly used than like V2 mom. You know, it, it really does require that linkage and that accountability of, you know, did you deliver on what you said you were going to like... Or did you change it? And if you changed it, like why? There should be a good reason. It's, it's okay to change, but like there should be a good reason for it. 
I'll allude back to like your last question here. Like this is this is where strategy teams are are changing. Like one of the teams that they kind of become like sister teams with is is strategy plus operations, and they become that kind of glue that you know makes strategy and execution actually be tied together. Yeah, no, exactly. I think that's kind of where it falls over. Like, and it's the hardest piece. I think is the implementation or execution piece because, like you said, accountability that gets very political very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, certain when you know certain incentives aren't aligned, or maybe most positions are, are quite political uh, to an extent, and you know you've got to be sympathetic to that. I think when I was first doing strategy, I was like, oh, well, this is going to push the company forward. Like, why don't you want to do it? And then you realize, oh, well, they're not being incentivized for that, or they don't care, or they can't do it. Oh yeah, I mean, like some engineer off in the far reaches of the company, they literally don't care. They just want to write their code and, and get their paycheck yeah. at the end of the day. So <laughs> Exercise their options after four years or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then go out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so like, I find maybe that's why some of the management consulting firms don't go into that piece because they just know that's the least scalable, most messy, most politically risky sort of area to go into. But yeah, I'm with you. Once it gets down to that operation layer, it's so critical. And I reckon that's almost harder you can't ignore the top level the nitty-gritty oh you've got to know the systems you got to know what to measure report that back get rid of the bias from the reporting <laughs> for it to all work yeah. okay what about and we just talked about platforms here but what are some of the tools that you use for for strategy and implementation uh, okay sorry like i'll have to mention cascade again here <laughs> um, lo love karim um he talks about like the the evils okay. of powerpoint yeah um, we, we talk all the time it's okay i, I love their social media too they're pretty funny <laughs> yeah, yeah their social there. media is awesome PowerPoint, you should not use PowerPoint for what Cascade does. <laughs> PowerPoint is not a goal tracking tool. <laughs> Oftentimes it becomes that. PowerPoint is very good at, at presentations and like building compelling stories. You yeah. also have the idea of, you know, we'll say like Amazon, like their, their six page, you know, PR FAQ. It's, it's the same idea. Of, of like a, a compelling narrative or story of like the, the why are we doing what we're doing. And so I think PowerPoint is necessary and can coexist in a world with Cascade or other execution software. In addition to that, one of the reasons why strategy I'll say used to exist and still does is because of like the, the lack or disparity of data across different teams and strategy teams were just very good at gathering and, and aggregating and interpreting that data. So some sort of like analytical tool, whether that's Power BI, Tableau, Looker, Excel is probably the most flexible and ad hoc of all of yeah. those. Yeah, because what used to happen is these two external sources of, of data, right? Because the internal data mm -hmm. was hard to get or wasn't existent. So the, yeah. you were integrating to like census data, you know, other industry reports, mashing all together, and then sort of focusing that down for, for analysis. Um, and mm -hmm. You know, those, so some of those platforms are expensive, so it wouldn't make sense for internal teams to use it once a year. So that's why sort of management consultants were hired and the analysts were so critical to that piece. And I think the analysis part is still a really good exercise to do. But like you said, do you need that external data when you get internal data? I, I think you need both, but primary data internally, it's obviously harder to argue you know, against. Yeah, so. I, I think that that like, dichotomy is part of what's changing strategy. Another like tool you mentioned glg or some of these networks i think they're incredibly helpful like that's mm -hmm. another tool that i love to use i've had conversations with people from instagram who talked about how when snapchat was like really threatening facebook they essentially broke apart their entire corporate structure and rebuilt facebook or instagram stories in, in three months which is incredible that like a company that large could break apart their corporate structure and do it that quickly and and basically like i, I won't say killed snapchat because they're making a bit of a resurgence now but like new neutralized them for yeah. like five years, honestly. And now they're probably doing it again with TikToks, you know, and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> all these, and it's weird now they got the metaverse strategy and I'm like, well, the gaming engines have that already. And you can see Microsoft buying into EA games. You see all these gaming engines with core, you know, 3D contextualized technology. Um, that's mm -hmm. the next play. And, and then Facebook are building it from scratch. I'm like, oof. You know, that's, uh, they, they can see these threats and they're responding, which is really good. But yeah, three months, thats that means you've got a flexible operational sort of structure happening there and political buy-in to, to change culturally, like you were saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm really like a bare bones proponent. You okay. know, like work should speak for itself. It doesn't matter what tool you use. Yeah, no, I'm the same. It's like, you know, you get you use the tools to get the job done, but it's about getting the job done and the quality of the job rather than the tools that you use. So yeah, I, I use PowerPoint for presentations or like some kind of slide program because sometimes you just visually need to contextualize yeah. something and then you're wrapping the story, but it's a visual aid. It's not, I don't think PowerPoint should be your strategy. <laughs> like you should have something written down in mm -hmm. some whatever form, use PowerPoint maybe as an aid to present 
and contextualize the strategy of the story. But then, you know, when it comes to implementation, obviously it's a different kettle of fish. So you mentioned OKRs and other frameworks. Like how do you measure if strategy is going well or not, especially when it comes to the implementation phase? Let's just say we've got political buy-in from the executives and now we're sort of filtering down to that next level of strategy. It's as an operational functional level. How do we know if strategy has been successful? This is is honestly, I, I don't think that anybody's solved this yet. <laughs> the approach that I've used historically is twofold strategy teams who are typically defining projects uh, ahead of time and at a very, we'll say broad or high level, it's very hard to attribute OKRs or metrics to those teams explicitly because oftentimes they're not the ones delivering, things change, little, I mean, tiny operational things that change like that where it's it's impossible to like make that link. And so one approach we've used is can we just attribute... 10% of this success metric back to the strategy team, whether it's launching a new product and there's, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue, we, we attribute 10 million of that back to the strategy team. Usage of tools. So like we are using one of the software stacks, like you said, for implementation, like the use of that. And then yeah, maybe something actually did happen that way you directed, you know, so that's. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point, like it, it, I think it becomes almost like not an OKR at that point because the projects are so like broad reaching, you know, some of the recommendations that I've made is migrate to public cloud. Yes, we migrated, but okay. <laughs> what percent of workloads is there? What data is there? What's our cost around it? Those are tons of other metrics that are more aligned with those operational teams or functional teams. So, I mean, bridge the gap, attribute what you can. It's just like marketing. Like what channel can we attribute this to? Like what method are you using? Like first touch attribution, multi-touch, last touch? Okay, well, what about want to hit some of the misconceptions about strategy that are out there? Now, I've, I've got my own list, but interested to hear yours as well. What are the sort of ones that you come across all the time? The strategy is just a vision. Strategy is like a budget. We don't do strategy or everybody does strategy. That's the idea that like somebody at Walmart said like cashiers can be strategic. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like <laughs> they're scanning stuff and putting it in bags. Like there is no strategy there. <laughs> I, I think I've defined this like corporate strategy, business strategy, functional operational strategy. I'll say like at the macro of those like sub levels, you can be strategic. But like if you are the engineer writing a for loop or some teeny tiny piece of code, or you're the cashier bagging something, or that level, those those individual actions, not strategy. They're just they're just actions or tactics, even that's a stretch. I see this one of the misconceptions is like it's just just a, a planning document, you know, and it doesn't include execution. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, doing the business, what you said earlier, is one percent strategy and ninety-nine percent execution. Yeah. So it's it's both. We went over some of the biggest barriers to strategy or effective implementation of strategy. Do you sort of see some of these pop up or like what are your top three or what are the sort of the pet hates you come across all the time in your in your line of work? You know. First one, we'll just go back to that. We'll call it like emotion versus logic. The the pet peeve of where you've you've done the analysis. I, I had a project where I, I pitched something that was going to have two hundred million dollars in revenue within two years and and completely pay everything back in three. The the response that I got from the person was, "No, we will never do this." And I was like, "That's a bold statement." <laughs> Pretty definitive. <laughs> so I mean that that idea of people don't want to change, you know, they want to keep doing what they're doing, they want to be comfortable, things like that. Another pet peeve I'll say is long term versus short term and organization versus self. You know, a lot of people unfortunately like don't care about the broader company. They just they just care about minimizing the pain that they get in their day to day job. But if everybody, you know, really kind of put I'll caveat this because there's like a number of different, I mean, you mentioned Elon Musk earlier, so like, I'll just say his name and it probably caveats this enough, but like putting the organization over yourself in the end helps yourself more. It it is just like a painful curve that you have to go through. Hmm. Another one is we'll say like middle management while people maybe don't prioritize the organization over themselves. I think that people at the C-suite or executive level typically do because their, their compensation is, is largely tied to stock and, and company performance. So they, yep. they're they on board. They also want to be like the visionary person that changed the company, like Satya Nadella did to, to Microsoft kind of a mm. person. Mm. Or people at the very bottom who you know just came out of school, just changed jobs. They're very hungry to, to do things. And then you have the people in the middle who just achieved 
some element of ownership and control and, and they want to exert that versus doing what's better for the broader organization. Um, like those are, those are probably my top three. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I, I definitely agree with all of those. And there's one I want to come back to as well. What about, we're talking about quality. So we mentioned the varying degree of, of quality from sourcing strategy from vendors. Again, maybe there's someone starting out their career, like you said, who have exposure to one sort of silo or area and perhaps don't have that uh, broader understanding that comes with uh, exposure uh, later in your career. So what are some of the hallmarks of someone who's doing strategy that could be a bit more less experienced? And then someone who uh, is very senior, very good grasp on things like if we had telltale signs, what are they? I, I think somebody inexperienced or you know in that bucket is probably just going to take the project that they get and just start executing on it. They don't ask questions. You know, how did this start? Why are we doing this? Who else isn't involved? Has this been done before? You know, somebody who kind of skips past that step is a major telltale sign. Another one is somebody who really, I'll use like, you know, software development as our, as our like measuring stick here. Um, you know, somebody who's doing waterfall versus agile approach, like somebody who just like goes off on their own and, and does their own thing. There was a strategy executive that I was familiar with who would go off and do these projects and, and not talk to the stakeholder for like 12 plus weeks and then come back. And like, that's never going to work because <laughs> the person's just over there thinking like, what are you doing? How do you even know what you're doing is going to work? You've never talked to me. So that's, that's another big, you know, sign of, of immaturity there. I think, you know, another thing is kind of just being like unaware of the broader business context and operations. You know, lots of times people, you know, like you said, default back to their like niche functional skill set. And they say like, oh, like marketing will solve our problem. And like it, it might or like, but realistically, it's probably only going to solve a piece of it. And you have to think about, you know, the other options here. Another like short anecdote there. I had somebody come to me, you know, adamant on standing up a, a tech council to kind of solve all of the problems that engineering was having within an organization. <laughs> and when you looked at it, tech councils across the organization had, had never been successful. Most of them lived for like three months and then they died. People stopped attending. They didn't have teeth to kind of implement anything. Really, it, it's a combination of things of like, okay, we need, you know, developer platforms and tools to help engineers go and do these things and make it easier for them. We need communities of practice so they get mentorship opportunities and, you know, knowledge sharing. We, we need a combination of these things. What about some funny, bizarre moments? You said the discipline of the gods. Explain <laughs> that to me. What's all that about? Yeah, you come from marketing discipline, so a little bit dishing on you here. But... Oh, good. I dish on them all the time. Don't worry about that. But one time kind of early in my... I, I had a professor who very carefully walked the line between like brilliant genius and crazy insane. And one time kind of early on in the semester, everybody was kind of settling into their seats. Class was starting. He started talking. And these two kids kind of walked in from the back of the class and they were wearing sweatpants, joggers, you know, high top Nikes, flat rim hats, things like that. They kind of walked in and then, you know, as he was talking, they kind of realized, oh, this isn't our class. And they, they kind of start to turn and, and walk out. And he just kind of lifts up his hands and is so like gestures to him, like, come learn the discipline of the gods. <laughs> um, and these two kids look at each other like, this guy's insane. <laughs> and then one of them is like, no, we're good. This is the wrong room. And they, they start to walk out. And the, the professor just goes, Psh marketing students <laughs> and then they look at each other like how did he know <laughs> no it's, it's, it's funny you can kind of pick the way people dress and act in terms of like what business discipline they work in i went for an interview at one company and and some guy was walking down the hallway wearing flip-flops and he had a shirt on that says i like to sleep and and the hiring manager just looked at me and he was like don't wear a shirt like that <laughs> And what about uh, some achievements that you're really proud of? Um, you said you did a, a SaaS business launch. Which one was that? You know, first off, I want to caveat, my views are my own, not my company's here. Sure. Um, a lot of people, when they look at Walmart, they think, you know, oh, retailer, e-commerce, something like that. But, you know, in reality, Walmart is or has like one of the largest tech organizations of a non-high tech company. 
And ultimately, I think that that distinction of like tech company versus non-tech company is is going to go away. Every company yeah. is going to be a tech company. But anyways, you know, Walmart has a ton of data and retail is super slim margins, you know, three to 5%. It's really hard to innovate and, and have financial discipline in the mm-hmm. long term on a company like that. Can we can we do something that has higher margins? You know, what what can we do? And that was kind of the vague like question that was posed to me. <laughs> Retail media. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Walmart has like Walmart Connect, which is, you know, definitely a higher margin business there. So then we looked at, okay, like, hey, can we monetize any of our existing tech products? Just flip them externally? Or do we have any unique data sets that we can monetize? You know, I think one that was talked about is stereotypical hundreds and hundreds of millions of Americans shop at Walmart every single day. You know, 90% of Americans live within 10 minutes of a Walmart. Our sales data is like as close a barometer to like economic activity as you could probably get. This is a large sample too. You don't even need a sample that large and you'd be pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that that's like a stereotypical example, but, um, you know, went through kind of this, this internal inventory of, of what products do we have? What what data sets do we have? Then looking externally, you know, what does the market want? What exists out there? And ultimately seeing where they they kind of bridge the gap. And we landed on selling, you know, different customer and sales data and insights to Walmart suppliers. Um, okay, cool. Walmart already had like a data offering called Retail Link. It's been doing it since like the 80s where we gave data for free to our suppliers to help them run the business. Hmm. But this was like a, a premium layer of data launched on top of that. And so I did a lot of the product definition of, of what does this look like? You know, financially, what's the revenue options here? You know, what is it going to take to deliver it? And, um, you know, I, I think I pitched that idea originally like three plus years ago. And it was actually launched publicly late last year. It's called Luminate. Um, Nice. So I'll give a lot of credit to like the people who actually built it, you know, again, <laughs> strategy and execution here. Like <laughs> sure. I designed the team, but like we hired a director of product management and a director of engineering who actually went and did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, big kudos to them as well. Well, that's great. It's good to see an idea go through all the way to fruition and uh, be tested, obviously, somewhat successfully by by the market forces. So mm-hmm. that's great. A lot of people don't get to, to experience that project. You know, with Steve Jobs, um, the consultant sort of thing, he's like, oh, you know, it's like fruit. They have worked in bananas and peaches or whatever. Like as a consultant, you get a very thin level of exposure to a lot of the stuff, but you never see a project all the way through to implementation. Yeah, that's rare. You either kind of lose sight of it or it, it doesn't happen at that time or <laughs> yeah. something like that. We touched on this a couple of times, but the changes in the strategy area. I mean, I can talk in, mm-hmm. within my discipline, which is, you know, growth, marketing, sales, you know, that kind of side of things. It'd be interesting to see because you've been probably strategy longer than I have um, over the years. Where has it started? What is sort of the orthodox view? Where are we heading and heading into the future? Like if you can explain to some people that are maybe really top of the game or some really new models that are gaining quick traction. So, I mean, you know, we'll probably start by referencing something earlier from the conversation back in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Management consulting was huge and we'll, we'll call that pure strategy. And ultimately, I think it's pure strategy is is being eroded. You see fewer and fewer of these pure corporate strategy teams. You look across the US at least, and there's, you can't really have corporate strategy at a company that's small because like that's the founder's job. So you have to look at companies, you know, in excess of a billion dollars in revenue and that severely shrinks the list. And then there's like one team at each of those. So very, very, very few. And so I think that that's primarily due to the, like the democratization of data. You know, we, we referenced that earlier. Now we have internal primary data sets from companies that, you know, is is much more clean. People can actually use it. You know, we see the rise of like data analytics and data science and being able to make decisions off of those. And so I'll say, especially at the operating strategy and functional strategy levels, like strategy is is much less needed. I I actually spent uh, about a year and three months looking for the job that I just changed into. Um, You've probably heard like the the anecdote of like the best time to look for a job is when you don't need one. You know, got a bunch of offers throughout the journey, but really was very picky about what I wanted because I could be. And, And so, you know, throughout this journey, you know, I saw a lot of different like combination strategy teams where these these pure strategy teams were starting to adopt other different functions to kind of 
augment their, we'll say like shrinking effectiveness. And so, you know, we see things like strategy and analytics. That's very common at companies, you know, FANG companies, like that's, that's key. Um, or strategy and business operations. We talked about that earlier, kind of that, that glue that holds companies together. You know, LinkedIn has like a very stellar business operations team or, you know, strategy and corp dev, like they pick up this deeper finance expertise or, or strategy and partnerships. And I mean, I've written an article on that about like the different flavors there as well. But, you know, that's, that's at least where I see, you know, strategy changing and going. So more down to that functional operational level informed by mostly internal data and decision-making sort of internal teams. There. Yeah, I think that there's still a role for pure strategy, but like I said, it's it's shrinking. At least right now, you, you can't combine like enough data sets in a meaningful way to like point at Walmart and say like, you should do X, Y, Z. Because it's just like, it's too big. It has its fingers in too many places. You can, you can do it on like pieces of it, but not at the macro scale. So, you know, yeah. corporate strategy at Walmart scale, like, necessary yeah i mean i've seen the same thing in in marketing industry as well so it used to be very reliant on the agencies to provide that strategy piece you know think of them like the consultant a management consultants at a firm and yeah now when you have your own analytics you're like well i actually know my target audience i know which ads i can execute the stuff myself like what do i need you for <laughs> and uh, there's a couple like uh, the only sort of brands that use them are, are sort of the big brands who use them as a political sort of hedge yeah. and maybe capability gap but mostly from a governance perspective as a hedge. So yeah, it's interesting. Agreed. Um, yeah. <laughs> What's a book that you've read recently around this topic or just generally that's really uh, changed your way of thinking for the better? Uh, a recent book, the most recent one that I read was actually Range by David Epstein. I, I think I, I did it without knowing that I was doing it. You know, my career of like broad sampling at first of like, you know, accounting, private wealth management, finance, venture capital, analytics. I got this broad sampling and, and developed that that breadth of range that we talked about earlier, but then started to develop more, you know, deeper industry functional expertise on top of that. Um, so it was good to see, you know, somebody kind of validate that. I guess yeah. but it's a it's a really good book to kind of challenge your thinking on on how things like that work. Oh well, you've got a whole list here: innovators, DNA, dilemma. Okay, yeah, Christensen, Clayton Christensen, yep. hit refresh. So yeah, Satya Nadella. So um, apparently, Sean Ellis, uh, one of the growth growth hacking guys who coined the term, who I've interviewed as well, he did a workshop with Microsoft back in the day in the very early stages of of this resurgence before they sort of went cloud and mm -hmm. subscription based, uh, which is a huge shift for, mm -hmm. for that organization at the time. Um, and that's when he came into that CEO role. So is, is that what he's detailing in this book? Yeah, basically, you know, uh, kind of similar to like Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, they, they yeah. probably fall into the same bucket of they want to have these deliberate strategies over time. But a lot of times, uh, especially I think Phil Knight does a great job of like, talking about his experiences going overseas to these different Japanese factories and having like no idea what he wants to do and coming out with some contract yeah. um, to, to build the business. But I mean, both of them have been wildly successful. So Great. And you've got Principles by Ray Dalio, classic. Um, and you mentioned that one before, an adaptation on Rugged mm -hmm. Landscape by Daniel Leventhal. Um, so yeah, I'm, de I'm definitely going to check mm -hmm. some of those out. Uh, what about uh, a really good website resource that's kind of your go-to website? You know, as a strategist, like you look at any and every piece of information because every project is different. I think that, you know, somebody who does a pretty good job of, of breaking down current events in a, like an interesting way is a, is a blog called Stratechery. Um, it's, it's mainly focused on like tech companies or, or large recent events, GDPR in the EU or different company or product launches. He does a, he does a great job of keeping up with current events, but also like breaking it down with, with strong like theory behind it. Great. Yeah. Cause that's often missing with online uh, resources, isn't it? It's like, it all sounds good, but then, <laughs> you know, their sources, you're like, oh, well, that's just opinion. So, okay, great. Um, what about yeah. a piece of tech could be software or hardware that allows you to do your job better? You know, some sort of slide software used PowerPoint at, at Walmart. Now I'm, I'm using Google slides at Snowflake, which is a struggle for me. But oh, I know, <laughs> right. They're so different. And you're like, oh, I wish I could just do this thing. And all the, uh, the shortcuts that you used to, you're like, oh, how do I do that thing? And yeah. I'm always going to the hot hot keys bar. is what's killing me. Oh, and then <laughs> you find, um, yeah, you find certain functions that are really critical that it just doesn't have. There's a workaround, but it's a custom piece of code. So you're constantly cutting and pasting yeah. code <laughs> functionality. Anyway. Damn it. Yeah. yeah I'm with and you. then, you know, Excel, just like flexible analytical tool. Um, yeah. If Microsoft also has different like charting things integrated into its own software. I, I think that, you know, a lot of management consulting firms have their own flavors of that. Um, yeah. Like a more open one that, that I've used and really like is ThinkCell. 
it's very easy to create like graphs and, and diagrams okay. you know inside awesome. of PowerPoint without having to deal with like the the spaghetti legacy code of of what's underneath the hood of PowerPoint. Now we talked a bit about quotes. Um, I follow this MBA-ish meme account on Instagram and they're on LinkedIn as well. They're just hilarious. There's a couple of other meme accounts I follow around consulting and strategy, which are pretty funny too. What are your sort of favorite quotes or memes that you come across in, in this topic? Just a couple of days ago, I saw a, a picture if you're a Star Wars fan of like Luke when he's he's training with with Yoda on his back and there's like the caption of, of Luke, a 20 to 30 year old consultant, you know, sourcing and delivering and doing all the work on every single project. And then, you know, Yoda on his back, you know, 50 to 60 year old partner who never retires kind of a thing. And, and just like sharing the reality of like how industry works. No, I love it. That's, that's um, very true, isn't it? No, another one that I saw that's, that's pretty hilarious is a, it's an old deck by somebody from BCG who, who built a deck for Valentine's Day to talk to his girlfriend. And he goes through like the data of different relationships that he's been in the past and, and what it means for like his current relationship. I'm looking and at it's... that now. He's used all the classic sort of like graphs and, and visual representations that they use. Like, ah. yeah, <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Okay, great. No, I think that's really definitely good. worth a read. Yeah, that's, that's, that's making me laugh already. Okay. And last thing, if someone really connects with what you're doing, obviously you're, you're, you've got a full-time job, but uh, let's just say intellectually or for something else they want to contact you, what's the best method? Yeah. You know, we, we talked about it earlier. LinkedIn is, is great. You know, looking for more than vanity metrics or number of connections here, like, like depth of, of depth. relationship is important. So, you know, LinkedIn's a great place to find me. Uh, well, that's how I found you. So uh, I just want to thank you for your time. I think it was really good. And yeah, hopefully we can talk uh, again soon about something else. Yeah, really enjoyed the conversation, John. So have a great day. So that was episode 10 of season three, a deep dive into pure business strategy. Where is it now? Where is it going? And how it applies to your role, no matter what position within the organization that you're in. And by understanding this level of business strategy, you'll be more empathetic to your superiors, more understanding of what things you should be trying to achieve. And all this knowledge will help you get promoted into more senior positions. And this is the first podcast interview Brian has ever done. And I think he smashed it out of the park. There's so much in this episode to unpack and listen to again. After all, he was the senior strategist at a $330 billion plus company. So you're hearing from one of the best strategy people in the world. Again, there's lots of work to go and thanks again for following. As always, if you have any feedback or comments, DM me on LinkedIn or tag me on Twitter. I dose John on Twitter or official John James is my LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram under Champagne Society. If you like this episode, why don't you tell people about it? Give it a review on whatever app you're using right now. And remember to click the follow or subscribe button to get more notifications next time we drop an episode. Join the reverse newsletter if you haven't already done so, so you can get some of your own questions answered. And go to the Hybrancy YouTube channel page to watch all these highlights and shorts to more episodes. But that's all for now. And until next time, thanks for listening.